Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. If you happen to find yourself this week in West Virginia on the Ohio River, make sure to stop in Point Pleasant for the Mothman Festival. I've been through there a few times. I saw their rad Mothman statue, stopped in one of the couple of stores that sell Mothman swag. I had someone give me a tour of the TNT area where those first couple of kids initially saw the Mothman. If you see the Mothman prophecies, which I recommend you do, that's where that's set. What isn't covered in the Mothman legends is that area is called the TNT area by locals, or just TNT, because in World War II, the military stored tons of ordnance. Since I was in diapers, it's been one of the largest, if not the largest, Superfund cleanup site in the entire country because of all the poison that's gone in the environment from that. Just a few short years after I climbed on and in and around some of those bunkers, there was one that still had an ordnance in it and it blew up. If someone were to say to me that the kids who were out there to neck just got a whiff of some of the chemical vapors that probably made their way up out of the ground and made them see something that isn't there, I'd believe it. But if someone were to tell me that those same chemicals created or attracted something strange that would haunt the night skies around Point Pleasant, West Virginia, I'd give that a thought too. And while I'm thinking about it, On the same day, we made a stop at the West Virginia Colored Children's Home, which is a decrepit building that made me sad to visit, to see a leftover from a much worse time in this country's history. 
And after that, we spent a very memorable evening in the old West Virginia Penitentiary in Moundsville. If you happen to have the opportunity to do one of their overnight stays, I cannot understate the terrific evening you'll have, unsupervised, with only your flashlight that hopefully you brought extra batteries for, to light your way, and all the space you'll like to roam the grounds of a disused prison. On our visit, one of our group's members was particularly handy with popping open master brand padlocks, quick sidebar, they're not that hard, to let us into the warden's tower, which was off-limits for our group, and found a window with a pentagram. I'm certain that the warden wasn't up to magical endeavors while the prison was in operation, but when it's 3 a.m. and you're in a dark old prison with flashlights and a couple people you barely know, coming across something like that without warning is a bit of a surreal experience. That was a good day in West Virginia. Let's hear some stories. Our first story comes to us from Ron Rieke. Ron wrote, UP, a novel, Great Michigan Read nominated, and edited The Way North, collected Upper Peninsula New Works, 2014 Michigan notable book. Here, Women Writing on Michigan's Upper Peninsula, 2016 Independent Publisher Book Award, and and here, 100 Years of Upper Peninsula Writing, 1917 through 2017, published by Michigan State University Press, July of 2017. Rieke has a upcoming book about the Evil Dead franchise coming out on McFarland, co-edited with Jeff Sartain, as well as another book upcoming with MSU Press in 2018. He has been a finalist for 31 screenplay competitions, including the first real Halloween, winning the International Family Film Festival for Best Feature Screenplay for Science Fiction and Fantasy. Google his name, and there's plenty of online literary journals where you can read more of his writing. Listen with me to Ron Rieke's Digging Up Doug. Everyone wanted to bury me because of my name. They said you don't bury a Sarah, you don't bury a Ken, you want to bury a Doug. They also told me I was the only one insane enough to do it. I didn't like that term, insane. I had a family member institutionalized, and it didn't feel right to label someone with something so harsh. One man's sanity is another person's insanity. It's all relative. I'm telling you this all in pitch black. My brother and all of his Muay Thai kickboxing buddies will be digging me up in a few moments. They told me that when I saw the sky again, cheerleaders would circle it. They said Kate would be there. It's no secret that I'd marry her in a heartbeat. My heartbeat right now. I'm noticing it's fast. I think it's the lack of air. My heart's trying to pump the blood through my body as fast as it can, to perfuse. The body has to do this when oxygen deprived. My brother said this would only be seconds, though, and the coffin, according to him, held at least 20 minutes of air. He told me that I could hold my breath for up to a minute in the community pool, and he'd have me dug up and out in less time than that. The girls had called and said they were less than a few minutes from the cemetery. A few minutes had already passed. The worst part was the dust. I felt like I was breathing beach. My brother said that if you want to attract girls, you have to give them some emotions during the date. He said that studies have actually proven that girls who go on dates and feel nothing over the course of the night are 90% less likely to go on another date. 
but the same study claimed that girls who report feeling any emotion, even negative emotions, quadruple their likelihood of a second date. The study showed that horror movies in particular were effective because the girls had multiple moments of emotional reaction and equated the boy as the person who saved them and helped them get through the traumas seen in the film. He said that once Kate realized I wasn't a corpse, she'd be all over me. It seemed worth a try. Kate hadn't seemed to realize I was alive, so I thought I'd have her at least realize I wasn't dead. My brother, though, wasn't particularly trustworthy. I could feel it in my lungs, the dizzying feel of the lack of oxygen. I should have taken a cell phone with me, but they seemed worried their phones could get broken in the process. The signal probably wouldn't work anyway. I listened. I figured I'd hear them before anything. I heard my leg move. I heard my breathing. I heard that before you suffocate to death, you fall asleep. You plummet asleep. You nosedive into the deepest sleep you can possibly sleep. That didn't scare me. That felt reassuring. I listened for my brother's voice. He talked me into doing a witchcraft ritual once. There was an argument that it wasn't witchcraft, that it was satanic. A further argument that it wasn't either, that it was just fairy tales. Another argument about how much they were sick of arguing. My brother hangs around with a bunch of boys who believe all the lies of masculinity. It's all cheap shots and alcoholism and flunking grades. The view is almost as if being male means failing. One of them got put in jail for a weekend and he bragged like he'd just gotten married. Some people want to wed the court system. The ritual failed. The circles dug in the ground got stomped out. The rhymes faded into the night. Husbands to nothing. We put the candles back in the garage, near the spare gas tank. We slept. The next day, my brother said that the ritual wasn't completed, though. There was more to do. I told him, good luck with gathering everybody like that again. There's a reason why covens rarely exist. Who can get 13 people to do anything these days? I listened. The silence meant cyanosis. Even the air had turned blue-black. Darkness is day, not being able to breathe. I listened. And heard, faint, what I swore could only be digging. It was faint. And I thought I would faint. Faint seemed to be the most important word of the moment. Night had succumbed to faint. I tried to close my eyes, but I realized they were already closed. The darkness was so thick that nothing could change it. It would eat through a flashlight. It would destroy a lamp. The darkness of coffins is made for the dead. I should have been above all of this, looking down at the slowly revealing coffin, Kate at my side. I didn't have the strength to move my arms anymore. I just lay there, waiting, listening, relieved that the sounds came closer. The muffled digging. I listened so intently that I wondered if my imagination created the sounds. But they were nearing. My imagination wasn't good enough to do that. I expected laughter woven in. None existed. Just digging. I listened. My whole inner compass seemed thrown off. I couldn't tell up from down, except I knew this. I was buried face up. They buried me so that I saw the sky before they closed the lid. There wasn't enough room for me to turn around, so I was definitely looking up, except the sound seemed to come from below. 
I'm sure the tricks of acoustics created the audio illusion. Without sight, your hearing supposedly intensifies, but perhaps it also distorts. My world was digging, or more correctly, being dug. Nothing else could be done but listening to the shovels, wondering if they might go right by me, miss me. Were they even more drunk by now? But the sound seemed to go straight to the heart of the coffin, definitely from below. The earth was being torn. Something wanted me now. The coffin quaked a bit from the nearest of the... shovels? The world underneath lightened. There seemed a hint of heat below my back. The madness of the feeling that I could sink down forever, for a million miles, into a nothingness we never knew even existed, just below our feet. 
were the bright blue eyes of Kira and her infant Brandon staring back at him. Not the pleading eyes of somebody begging for both their lives, just the blank and tired expression of somebody resigned to their fate. That somehow made it that much worse. Turlock placed the small pottery beaker down on the table and looked around the inn, his heart aching. There was not a person present who had not lost a friend or a family member in this latest visitation of the plague, and the mood was a sombre one. As little as ten days ago the inn would have been filled with both people and music, somebody would be playing a harp or beating on a baron, and there'd always be someone who'd had a little too much of the strong stuff merrily singing along. Now the only music was that of a broken voice singing a haunted and mournful lament to the dead. The few occupants stared down at their drink so as not to meet each other's gaze, and a fog of thick pipe smoke clung to the rafters like a rain cloud. As Roland's chief enforcer, it was not wise for Turlock to be seen drinking this late at night, especially some illegal concoction from a hidden still that his employer was trying to either close down or tax, but with the mood he was in, he was past caring. He'd spent the evening trying to remind himself that he'd only been doing his job, but it did little to assuage the guilt he felt. Everybody knew the rules. If you knew of anybody in your family who had contracted the plague, you had a day to report it to the necessary authorities, which in this case would have been Turlock or one of his men. A few months earlier, in a desperate attempt to stem the flow of the plague, Dublin had held a general assembly of council members, landowners of adjacent ground, sheriffs and wealthy residents in which they determined that the concealment of the plague-stricken was largely responsible for their failure to contain the disease. They had all mutually agreed on a decree whereby failure to alert the authorities would be punished. It was ultimately up to the sheriff, in this case their Protestant landowner, Roland Gibbs, to determine the punishment of any found break in this law. A certain leniency could be given where the afflicted would be sent to a plague house and their families exiled. But as the Abilans had no such building, no such compassion could be granted. Muttering a tiny curse towards Roland, Turlock looked at the ceiling before taking another sip of Putjean. He winced at the strong, peppery taste as the familiar warmth slid down his throat and into his food-starved belly. It's said that one day, when the devil scratched his arse and picked his nose, Roland Gibbs fell out. The townsfolks just hadn't figured out which end he'd emerged from yet. It wasn't uncommon for a town as small as theirs to have no provision to hold the plague-stricken, but in the case of the Abilans, the absence of such a building was down to Roland's greed. Gibbs had inherited the deeds to the Abilans and some of the surrounding land barely a year ago, won at a drunken card game, it was rumoured, and seemed insistent on making everybody's life as miserable as possible ever since. Taxes had risen twice under Gibbs in that short period, and the already poor populace were suffering. Their only church, traditionally at the heart of their community, had fallen into disrepair, the funds for its upkeep diverted into adding yet another room or outbuilding to Gibbs's already oversized house at the top of the hill. He had also refused to contribute towards converting one of the many vacant properties 
into a building to house the plague sick. The townsfolk had begun to organise to do the work themselves, even with their own limited funds, but Gibbs had outright forbid it. I'll have no nest of filthy plague-bearers in my town. God looks after his own, the cleanest of us, he had insisted. Yet despite this, the plague still came. Gibbs had further dictated that there'd only be one kind of punishment for those who'd secreted the plague-sick, and it was the cruelest punishment of all. Today had been the fifth time that Turlock had carried out the act, and the very thought of it sickened him. They called it the ceiling. The plague sufferer and their entire household, whether they showed signs of infection or not, would be taken to their place of residence. The contents of the house, all furniture, personal belongings and food, would be removed and burned. Turlock and his enforcers would then begin the unpleasant process of fetching thick pieces of timber from the stores and nailing them all over windows and doors, sealing the occupants within. For the first day and night, you'd hear the sounds of scraping from inside, with the occasional thump, as the occupants tried to scratch or push the planks away. There'd be swearing and cries for help, usually seeking food or water, the calling of neighbours' names, and despondent sobbing. From Turlock's experience, the activity within those dark rooms would peak around a day after the initial incarceration. The cries would become more desperate, the attempts to break the wood stronger and more determined. Around this time, a number of other things invariably happened. The first was the realisation that nobody was going to help them finally dawned on the building's occupants. There were no means of escape. By this stage, it was also very likely that the sufferer they'd been trying to hide had succumbed to the plague and died. The second thing that happened was the disease that had been trapped in there with them would now start to take its effect, if it had not already, on the other occupants. The Black Plague is a cruel and painful way to die. It starts with weakness, trembling and the sweats, but over time, the more visible sign appear. Buboes appear on the body, typically under the armpit and around the groin, sensitive and painful blue-black swellings. Turlock had noticed that people had nicknamed these God's Tokens, because God would soon take the sufferer once they appeared. He'd heard tell that sufferers would begin to reek of death, a foulness indicating that the poor soul with the blight was rotting from within. People were forbidden from assisting those imprisoned in their own houses, lest they be subject to the same punishment. They weren't even allowed to acknowledge that the occupants of the house existed and were prohibited from speaking to them, even to offer words of comfort. The next day would be considerably quieter. The strongest of the afflicted might still be trying to find a means of escape, but the only sounds were usually those of the sick vomiting or coughing up blood. At this stage, any movement by the affected would be utter agony, so they'd inevitably die where they slumped. The occasional prayer may be cried out in desperation. This wouldn't be a plea to the healed, the time for that had long gone, but a heartfelt prayer for a quick and painless death. By the end of the third day, all would be quiet. 
Eighty days later, Turlock and his men would pry the planks of wood away from the windows and doors and place them back onto the cart so they could be taken away and stored for the next time. The victims would usually be found huddled together in the same room, shriveled corpses sprawled and lying in scattered black patches of dried blood. Their corpses would be burned on the same patch of blackened grass that once served as the pyre for their worldly goods. Many of his colleagues protected themselves with prayers at both the beginning and the end of the incarceration process. People had even taken to burning aromatic woods around these charnel houses, anything to prevent breathing in the sick miasma. Turlock, however, was a practical man, and though possessed of a great faith, preferred to rely on a good old-fashioned cloth around his nose and mouth to avoid breathing in the sickness. Kira and Brandon was the fifth sealing he had done in as many weeks. The boy was badly infected, the boil on his neck so outsized that it tilted his teeny head, and it looked as though the mother hadn't eaten in days through worry. Turlock suspected that neither the mother nor newborn would last through nightfall. Turlock looked down at his empty beaker and considered topping it up again from the earthenware jug at his side. It was rumoured that if you drank too much of the stuff, you could go blind. Turlock wondered, considering all the things he'd seen, whether that would be a small mercy. When God was taking innocent babies through the great mortality, what chance did any of them stand? Turlock stared at his shaking hands in the illumination of a single shaft of sunlight, the tips of his fingers reduced to stumps, fragmented and shattered fingernails glistening with blood. The thick black plank that has blocked his way had barely been touched, narrow and even scoring flecked with red dots traced across the narrow patch of it. He staggered backwards, racked with pain. His breathing increased in pace. He looked down at his body, now a mess of black and blue boils, rubbing painfully across each other with every movement he made. The sunlight glinted off the pearlescent surface of each one, and Turlock could do nothing but watch in revulsion as they began to swell and inflate. The foul and viscous liquid contents of the largest, an obsidian sphere the size of his head, yearned for escape. The membranous skin stretched until it could be stretched no further, and Turlock shrieked a gargled cry. Turlock sat up with a start, knocking the now-empty earthenware jug from his lap onto the ground, where it fell in two pieces with a single crack. The scent of the vile potato whiskey filled his senses, but no liquid spilled forth, having all been drunk by Turlock the evening before. The soreness in his head and the hollowness behind his eyes were testament to that. Groggily, he looked about himself. He was inside his barn and slumped against the far wall, so he'd at least managed to stagger home in the state he'd drunk himself into. The door lay ajar, and his bed remained untouched. Steadying himself with one hand on the floor and another on the wall, he slowly stood up and swayed unevenly on his unsteady feet. With two unbalanced lurches forward, Turlock collapsed both face first into his bed and into a deep sleep.
He woke from a mercifully dreamless sleep to the sound of a loud shouting voice and a hand shaking him by the shoulders. By the time the clarity of the outside world had reached a certain stage, he could make out that the voice was insistently shouting his name. The blurred face he turned over to stare at was Phelim, one of his fellow enforcers, who was looking down at Turlock with a concerned expression of urgency, all the time silently mouthing at him to stand up. It took a few moments for Turlock's addled brain to work out that the shouting was coming from elsewhere and not from Phelim at all, and with a sobering horror the truth dawned on him. He sat bolt upright. Sheriff Gibbs was pacing up and down the floor of Turlock's tiny home, his ordinarily ruddy face now a beetroot purple with rage. Upon seeing that Turlock was awake, he stormed over and glowered down at him. Another bloody useless drunken tag, he spat, flecks of spit raining over the semi-conscious Turlock. I needed you hours ago, and yet here you are, asleep in your damned pit. Turlock raised a weak arm of protest, but Roland pushed it away. If it's booze that's keeping you from your work, I'll keep your coin for this week, and if you have money for drink, I'm paying you plenty too much. He stood up and turned away from Turlock. And be glad I don't keep your coin for the month. Get yourself cleaned up. I want to see you at the house for. He stopped abruptly, and without another word, quick marched to the doorway of the house where Turlock had been slumped for most of the morning. He turned back, holding one half of the cracked earthenware jug, a self-satisfied smirk on his red, pig-like features. He held it up to his nose, a knowing look in his eyes, and sniffed it deeply before turning away from it in mock disgust, eyebrows raised. Pudgeen, he snarled. Damned potato whiskey. He threw the jug onto the floor, where it shattered into a dozen more pieces. Apoplectic with anger now, he marched back to where Turlock sat. If Gibbs wasn't quite so powerful, the sight of this purple-faced fat man might almost have been comical. If the Lord God had any mercy, he'd have made the evil squat feller's heart pop right out there and then. You tell me where you got this damnable poison from if you know what's good for you, so help me God. Found it, came the reply from Turlock, the words slightly slurred. He couldn't look Gibbs squarely in the eye. He'd never seen Gibbs looking quite so angry. A few of the veins in his forehead were now protruding so much it looked like he was smuggling twigs in there. He breathed deeply before leaning in, their faces now almost touching, and Gibbs's voice reduced to a menacing snarl. "'You'll tell me where you got it from, by God,' he said, prodding a finger into the top of Turlock's chest, "'or I'll turn over every home in Abbeylands until I find that still, and exile every uncivilized tag bog-trotter that I find there.' Turlock knew that, for all of Gibbs' pretense, the oaf didn't want to know where the putching came so he could ban it. He knew that Roland would be well within his rights to levy a tax on the sale of it, a nice little earner for the vile little money-grabber. The still belonged to an old fellow who distilled the stuff in his own basement. If Gibbs decided to search out for it, he'd find it in no time, and poor Kavanagh and his wife wouldn't survive a night of being exiled. Almost on cue, Gibbs changed his tone and his grimace turned into a smile. Looking at that row of yellowing teeth, Turlock didn't know which expression he hated more. 
Of course, said Gibbs, straightening the collar on Turlock's filthy shirt. I don't want to have to do that. If you tell me where you got it from, I can come to an arrangement with them, and there's no reason you can't still have your putching. Do I make myself clear? Turlock nodded and his face fell. Gibbs stood back up, rubbing his hands together, one eyebrow raised in anticipation. Turlock glanced over to Phelan, who was glaring back angrily, fearful of what he would say next. I... I was wrong, Mr. Gibbs, Turlock said mournfully. I was wrong to hide it from you. Of course I'll tell you where I got the putching from. Gibbs placed his hands on his hips and glared at Turlock. Truth be told, Mr. Gibbs, he said, bringing himself up to his feet. Turlock was a stocky and well-built man, as taller than Roland as Roland was wider than he was. He hadn't been given the role of chief enforcer for his charm with the women, or his ability to hold a drink, after all. Truth be told, Mr. Gibbs, he repeated, looking his taskmaster square in the eye. I got it from a pal visiting from Canmer. Gibbs glared back at him, his mouth opened as though to say something, but he merely stood there for a few minutes incredulous, looking to all the world like a landed fish straight from the brook. If you want, smiled Turlock, I can ask him where he got it from, you know, if he passes through again. Tomorrow morning, barked Gibbs, turning on his heel, I want you at my house as soon as the sun rises, and not a moment later. Phelan looked over at Turlock with a gleam in his eyes, struggling to keep a straight face. The two of them exchanged a wink, and he hurried back after Gibbs, closing the door carefully behind him with a final smile. Phelan! screamed Gibbs, the sound of his shouting vanishing into the distance. Turlock rolled his eyes and fell backwards onto the bed, breathing a huge sigh of relief. Gibbs was as petty as he was cruel, and the sunrise saw Turlock tasked with the unpleasant job of cleaning the latrine pits from his master's estate. For a man living here alone, thought Turlock, he certainly produces a fair lot of shite. It was nearly noon when he saw Phelan leave the house, no doubt given another petty task from the sheriff. The two nodded at each other and Turlock stepped closer, his hand outstretched. I'll stand me distance if it's okay with you, Turlock, chirped Phelan as he backed up. I think you've inadvertently found a way to spare yourself from the plague. The grim reaper himself wouldn't dare go near you smelling like that. Did you go near Kira's house today? asked Turlock. I did, yes. Did you hear anything? Ah, oh, Jesus, Turlock, you don't want to be asking questions like that. I need to know, Phelan. Phelan looked at the ground and then back at his old friend. There was sorrow in his eyes. I I heard nothing from Kira, but the baby, Turlock. The baby is still crying. Turlock put his hands over his mouth and held back a sob. By some cruel twist of fate, Brandon had outlived his mother. Now he lay there, dying in the dark, crying for succour that had never come. Oh, Jesus, save him, he muttered under his breath. Jesus, save us all. Turlock marched towards the door of the house and was only prevented from barging in by Phelan placing a hand on his shoulder. What are you doing, Turl? he asked. This is wrong, said Turlock, his voice racked through bitter tears. I'm away to your man to get this sorted. Phelan had seen this look on his friend before and knew that nothing he said would change his mind. He nodded and took a step back. 
Gibbs was counting coins when Turlock walked into his office. He looked up at his chief enforcer and feigned a look of disgust. Away with you to get a wash, man. I asked you to clean my latrine, not bring half of the contents in with you. A word, Mr. Gibbs. Be gone. Will that do? Gibbs smirked to himself, pleased his punch with his little witticism. The baby Brandon. His mother is gone, but he still lives. Gibbs shrugged his shoulders and glanced about the room, as though registering his lack of concern to an imaginary audience. And this concerns me in what way? This is cruel, Mr. Gibbs. We shouldn't be punishing an infant like this. Punishment, Mr. Hyle. The infant has the plague. He'll be in the arms of the Lord soon enough. Even now isn't soon enough, Mr. Gibbs. Something should be done. And what do you recommend? Cure the child with prayers? We put the baby out of its misery, Mr. Gibbs. To let it live another moment is torture. Suffer the little children. Isn't that what the good book says? Let the child suffer. Gibbs was as ignorant as he was cruel. Suffer means allow, Mr. Gibbs. And who do you propose we send into that charnel house, Mr. Hyle, that festering plague pit? A moment of silence. I would go. Gibbs opened a drawer in his desk and slid the pile of coins back into it using his forearm, as though taking his eyes off his wealth for one moment would see it stolen. He closed the drawer and stood up, wandering slowly towards the window. From on top of the hill, they could see the whole town. Gibbs had his home built here for exactly that reason, so he could see that which he ruled over. Ordinarily, there'd have been a church on such a hill, but Gibbs was having none of that. The church was instead a squalid, dilapidated building, hidden in the town itself, the funding it should have received diverted into increasing the luxury in which Gibbs had become accustomed. The town didn't look like much from Gibbs's hill, an array of featureless ramshackle buildings with black smoke rising from it into the equally grey sky. Do you know why we lock them up in their houses, Mr. Hyle? Turlock knew the actual answer, but he dared not say it aloud. People were locked up in their houses because Gibbs wasn't to spend a single coin on caring for them to make their last days on this miserable world tolerable. He remained silent. I'll tell you why. We lock them up in their houses to act as a deterrent, Mr. Hyle. The plague comes back time and time again to Abbeylands because they deserve it. He turned back to face Turlock, leaning against his desk. If a lonely infant crying in the dead of night is enough to remind people that they shouldn't hide those with the plague, then I welcome it. Let it cry. Brandon, burning with a fierce strength that none had expected from someone so young, bawled for his dead mother, not only that night, but also throughout the next day and night as well. The sound echoed around the town, and every soul who heard it, save Gibbs, winced with every new cry, or crossed themselves with every fresh wail. It was only in the early hours of the following morning that the noise finally ceased. The nerves of all were on edge until the sun rose, but the house had finally fallen silent. For the next few weeks, the sound of any baby crying, or even the sound of the hungry gulls that swept overhead, reminded everybody of poor Brandon. 
With no fresh outbreaks of the plague, however, it seemed that even death was sated with his prize of an infant. Time went on. Winter was upon them, one Turlock and his colleagues prized the black timber from the windows and the doors. Turlock, at his insistence, was the first inside. In the bare room they lay together propped against a wall, a nigh-on-skeletal gaunt form of a body grasped at the tight leather-shinned arms of Kira's corpse. The mother looked at peace, but the mouth of the child was wide open, as though it had finally perished mid-cry. The remains were burned on the pyre, and Turlock mouthed a special prayer that night as he watched the flames burn down to ember. Of course, death is never satiated. It has an endless hunger which can only be held at bay, and never truly repelled. A rumour of a black mark only partially hidden by clothing, a family who lingers in their home too long, shunning their neighbours, a raid by enforcers that revealed two of a family of five had the curse, God's tokens already fully formed. The final judgment against the family, given by the bastard Gibbs and no other, was no surprise. The enforcers didn't say a word to each other, as familiar black planks were carried from the cart, and nail after nail after nail sealed the walls and the final fate of the building's occupants. Turlock nailed the last plank into place and stared at the man within, already two days gone with the boils. There was no begging or pleading, no sobbing for mercy, just a glance between the two as though there was some unspoken agreement that had taken place. With the last plank nailed into place, Turlock went back to his home, lay on his bed, and lost himself in thought. He thought about the smile on the face of Gibbs when the final judgment was decreed, and how, even despite a last-ditch attempt by Turlock for leniency, the house was declared to be sealed. He thought about how easy it was for the chief enforcer to conspire with all the other enforcers, most of whom had lost family and friends. He thought about how easy it was to knock Gibbs unconscious, and how heavy he was to drag to the house. He thought about how easy it had been to sneak Gibbs into the house while all the other enforcers kept everybody else away, and he remembered the panic look on the sheriff's face when he realised where he was. He remembered seeing the family to be turned within, all confined to their house before the deed was done, and more to the point, he remembered the understanding look on the father's face. He remembered hearing the muffled, almost silent cries for help from Gibbs that were dulled through several layers of folded bedsheet wrapped about his mouth. He remembered him trying to struggle free from the tight bonds that Turlock had placed on him. In addition, the most delicious memory of all, he remembered leaning in close to Gibbs and saying three words that caused the sheriff to sob uncontrollably, his final fate now known to him. Let it cry. The plague never came to the Abbeylands again. The disappearance of the missing sheriff was never solved, and the deeds of the land reverted into the hands of another. To say the new owner was kind would be exaggerating, but to his credit he never exhibited the level of coldness that Gibbs had. 
Turlock Hyle lived to a ripe old age. Not a great one by today's standards, but it was grand enough for the time. When a certain amount of time had passed after the deed was done, he'd tell any fellow who bought him a drink, and they'd all listen attentively to him. A cynical man would say that the Irish are known for telling their tall tales, but there wasn't a soul who wouldn't be utterly convinced by every word that came out of that old man's mouth when he came to the end of the story. For eighty days and eighty nights I wondered how God would take him, whether it would be the hunger or the plague that dragged him off to the hell he richly deserved. I remember it was a cold morning. The snows had just started to fall when he prized away the black planks, and I, as I always did, went into the house first. I knew something wasn't right when I stepped in, where I'd expected to see a pile of corpses. There was something else. Something thin and blackened, layers of sodden red bedsheets clinging to it like a shroud. An animal that had once been a man sprawled across the pile of shining bones of the plague dead. It looked up at me with the eyes of Roland Gibbs. The thing covered with the scars of burst plague boils stretch out an accusing finger towards me before dying. It should have died a long time before, but it had waited for me out of sheer spite. That was David Court's Let It Cry, as read by Cian McMahon. Cian McMahon is an Irish software engineer. While he hopes to someday revive his show, which pod faded many years ago, he now spends most of his free time playing about with cameras and cooking, and old microphones and sound desks lurk in the shadows right at the edge of eyesight. Thank you, Cian. That'll be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editor, Scott Silk, and associate editors, Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini. Website design by Josh Lightsey, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>